Bible to the book of Haggai, the third to last book of the Old Testament, right before Zechariah and Malachi. I know this will not be of help to everybody, but uh, I just put the, uh, the sermon title and outline in the group me. I know not everyone is in our church group me, but I thought that might be easier for those who just want to have a quick way of looking at the outline without having to write it all down. But um, I'll give you the outline right now for our message today. You'll have to forgive my voice. I'm fighting a little bit of a cold, so... I hope my voice makes it through the message today. Haggai chapter 2, we're going to cover the rest of the book. So this is verses 6 through 23. I've titled the message, uh, The Present and Future Blessing for All Repentant Sinners. Present and Future Blessing for All Repentant Sinners. I have three points. I'll just tell them to you now and then we'll work through them. Number one, unrepentant sinning defiles all we touch. Unrepentant sinning defiles all we touch, and that's verses 10 through 18 of Haggai 2. Number two, repentance leads to immediate blessings now. Repentance leads to immediate blessings now, and that's especially verse 19. And then number three, repentance leads to astonishing blessings later. Repentance leads to astonishing blessings later, and that's verses 6 through 9 and verses 20 to 22 of Haggai chapter 2. And just to warn you, under my third point, I have three relatively brief sub-points that we'll get to towards the end. So just be ready for that for point number three. I'm going to read the text for today. Again, this is the word of the Lord. I'm going to start at the uh, the beginning of chapter 2, just so we get the flow of thought, and I'll read all of chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord, Haggai chapter 2. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of the land of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Now this week's text, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
asks the, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does, not, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider, from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the wine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day onward, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would help our minds to understand what is happening in this passage as best we can. And then I pray, God, that you would illuminate this so that our hearts grasp the meaning, that we would be submissive to your word, that we would tremble before your word, that we would desire what your word teaches to be what is true of us, of our families, of this church, of our friends, neighbors, coworkers, of all that we know and love. God, help us to have hearts that are willing to let go of distractions and to place themselves truly under your lordship and under your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to start with point number one here today. And just remember, Haggai's ministry, we've talked about this, was only just under four months in length. Remember, he started on August 29th, 520 B.C., and his last messages come on December 18th, 520 B.C., excuse me, 518 B.C., December 18th. And actually, chapter, uh, chapter uh, 2, most of what you hear in chapter 2, from verses 10 onward, these last two words from the Lord, from Haggai, both come on the very same day, on December uh, 18th. So here are the, here are the, here's point number one. Unrepentant sinning defiles all we touch. Unrepentant sinning defiles all we touch. This was intriguing to me to study and to try to understand what is happening here, so I want to try to walk through this text uh, with you. Look at chapter 2. We're going to start in the middle of, of our text today, verse 10. Again, this is coming on December 18th, 520 B.C. Here's what we hear. Verse 10 of Haggai 2. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. I'll stop right there. This message is given to everybody, but it's especially targeted at who? 
It's especially targeted at the priests. And Haggai has a question to ask the priest. You know how when uh, Nathan confronts David about his adultery, remember he has a little story to tell him first, a parable about a man who had his sheep stolen and David gets all angry and then suddenly he turns it on him and says, well, you're the man. Uh, Sometimes it can be very interesting to tell a story or a parable or to talk about something a little detached and then have a person give their verdict on it and then to turn it back on the person, right? Jesus does this with the woman from the city who was a sinner. Remember the prostitute who, who had become a Christian? What what happened? She comes in weeping over Jesus' feet, washing his feet. The amount of tears must have been abundant, taking her and like her hair down and wiping his dirty feet with her hair. This is a stunning thing. And what does Jesus do? Simon, the Pharisee's in the room who doesn't like this. And Jesus says, Simon, let me uh, me tell you a little story. Someone forgives someone. uh, Someone's forgiven 50 denarii. Someone's forgiven 500 denarii, a day's labor. Which of the two who are forgiven will love the man more? And Simon says, well, the one who was forgiven, the greater debt. Right? You see, Jesus asks this remote story, and then Jesus turns it on Simon and goes, hey, Simon, guess what? You don't love me very much because you don't realize how much you need to be forgiven. This woman knows how, how much she needs to be forgiven. That's why she's on her feet right here on her knees, weeping abundantly because she knows the greatness of her sin. She understands the greatness of the debt that's been canceled. She can't get enough of worshiping the Lord Jesus because she understands. So similarly here, God gets Haggai to ask the priest a technical question about Levitical law, it's also in Numbers, about clean and unclean objects. And this is not part of the Bible that we as American Christians, and I myself, tend to spend a lot of time trying to understand. So let's just look at the question that is asked. It's a little remote for us today, perhaps. So verse 11, ask the priest about the law. Verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. By the way, they're, they're correct about that, okay? So here's the idea. If you have holy meat that you're carrying, a priest could put the holy meat inside the fold of the priest's garment, and it would, in a sense, it would sort of sanctify the priest's garment. It was this holy moment right here of ritual purity. But if the priest takes the garment that's holding the holy meat and touches a third object, does holiness just transfer from the garment to the third object? And the answer is no. It doesn't work like that. Wouldn't that be great if holiness could just be transferred like that? But no, that's, that's not the way it works. It doesn't work like that. And they, they were right. They got the question right. But then Haggai has a second question, and this question leads to a setup, a gracious setup that we all need to hear. Verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, what? It does become unclean. Just so you know, the verse, Numbers 19.11, I had to look it up to find where this was. Numbers 19.11 says, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. Now remember, I don't want to get into a big thing about cleanliness in the Old Testament here. Uh, it's not talking about your hygiene per se, but the idea of this, this is the idea in the Old Testament was this. It was not always a sin to be ritually unclean or impure in the Old Testament. Sometimes it was unavoidable. What was sinful was if you went into the temple to worship God in a state of ritual impurity, that was a sin. But it wasn't necessarily a sin to be impure. You just go through some ritual bathing. You might bathe on the third day and on the seventh day, and then after seven days, you're, you're no longer unclean from touching a dead body. But while you are unclean, what happens to everything you touch? You remember, you remember Midas' touch back in mythology? Remember King Midas? He wanted to have gold everywhere so he could touch well, everything he touched turned to gold, and it seemed great until he started touching his family members, and then he's like, uh-oh. Now they're just golden statues. This is not working out so well, right? So Midas touch, everything you touch turns to gold. Well, this is when you're defiled, everything you touch becomes ritually unclean just like you are. 
So if you come into contact, it can spread rapidly. Ritual impurity spreads easily by touch. Numbers 19 says this. This is the law. Numbers 19, verse 14. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Do you see it spreads? Holiness does not spread by touch like this, right? At least in this text. But what spreads? Uncleanness spreads easily, like a plague just spreads. Okay, what's Haggai going to do with that? I mean, it's great to know that. Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't, but what's the point? Okay, look at verse 14. Haggai's going to turn this on us. Verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people. Do you hear Nathan? You're the man. (laughs) So is it with this, this is you guys I'm talking about. What do you mean? So is it with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw a wine to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you, etc. What's, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. Here's the analogy. The Lord is saying this. Israel, for 16 years, as we've talked about, all of you corporately have been neglecting the most obvious basic act of obedience I have asked you to do. What is it? Rebuild the temple. For 16 years, out of nothing but fear, You have not feared me, but feared your enemies, the Samaritans, and you have chosen deliberately to omit a massive act that I have commanded you to be a part of. This is why I sent you home. This is why I, I stirred Cyrus, the Persian king, to send you home with treasures of gold to rebuild the temple. This is why you are there. This is your reason for being. And for 16 years, you've built your own houses with nice paneled wood, but you have refused to build on the foundation of my house. And here's what God's saying. It's almost as though there's a ritual corpse lying in the middle of the city. It's the unbuilt temple. And it's making all of you unclean. Not ceremonially, morally. Because you're neglecting the most obvious, significant piece of moral imperative God has given you for 16 years. All your other worship is infected and is a sham because you're neglecting basic obedience in this central issue. To go back to my first point, unrepentant sinning defiles all that we touch. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. This is to your left, a few books, uh, a number of books. Isaiah uh, chapter 1, first chapter of Isaiah. Before I read this, I'll give just a ridiculous illustration. This is awful, terrible, but I, I think it dramatically makes the point. Here's the point. Imagine a husband who is serving his wife in all kinds of ways, okay? He's doing all the apparently right stuff. He's doing all these acts of service for his wife. He's caring for her. He seems to be leading her well, and he plans this vacation with his wife, and he's spending all this money, and he's doing all this prep work, and then, I know this is ridiculous, his wife finds out he's in adultery. He's committing adultery right now. He's living in adultery right now. She finds text messages on his phone that indicate there's this inappropriate relationship going on. Now, let me ask you a question. Maybe to the married ladies in the room, i just ask a question here. At that point, what happened to every other good deed your husband had been doing over the last six months? What happened to them all? Did they not just become defiled? Because obviously, 
the central act of disobedience that is willful and fundamental just ruined. Everything else is now a sham. Like, it's a joke. It's, 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 it's hypocrisy. It's insult to injury. No way. Unacceptable. Okay, now think about this. Spiritually, sin is considered spiritual adultery, right? Living for a false god rather than for the true god. When, when we are fundamentally an unrepentant sin in our life, every other deed we do becomes hypocrisy and defilement until we deal with that willful sin in the center of our life. Do you see the application here? So here's an example of Isaiah discussing the people in a similar state of sin. Isaiah 1 verse 11. Here's what God says to Israel. Isaiah 1 11. What to me, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of uh, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. Goats, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? He calls their going to church, their going to temple, trampling his courts. It's an insult. Verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings, Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, like in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you see what Isaiah is saying? It's the same thing. When there's fundamental spiritual adultery going on, willfully and truly, all your religious gatherings and offering sacrifices and your new moons and all these things God commanded them to do, all of that becomes as a stench in God's nostrils because it is not coming fundamentally from a heart of love to God. Let's turn back to Haggai. I'm just going to read through a list of bullet points and verses here. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not listen to me. Proverbs 28, verse 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs Proverbs 15, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How about this? 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman is the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why, husbands, why should you love your wife in an understanding way? So that your prayers may not be hindered. Are you hearing this theme? 1 Peter 3, 12, a few verses later. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Here's the point of this. If right now in your life, in your heart, there is a sin that is clearly controlling you right now, willful, unrepentant, just there it is. There's a sin, if you know in your own conscience right now, I know I am grasping onto something that is truly wrong. It is not of God. It is not according to God's commands. It is evil. It is wicked. Maybe a plan that you have. Maybe it's something else. You've got something you're grasping onto. In that moment, you're giving to the church. You're singing hymns 15 minutes ago. You're listening to a sermon. 
you're going to Bible study, you're reading your Bible, you're listening to a sermon on the way home from church, you're having a discussion about the sermon when you have dinner tonight with your family. All that stuff is a stench in God's nose if we're not dealing with sin that is right in front of us. Here's what God would say. I'm not going to listen to your prayer. I'm not going to be there when you pray. I'm going to shut my ears to your prayer. You say, why would God say that? Because until you're ready to deal with that sin, I'm not going to deal with you. That's what God is saying to Israel. That's what God would be saying to us. So long as I am clinching on to sin, God says, unless you want to talk to me about repenting of that sin, don't talk to me about other things. It's like this. Don't plan a date night with your wife until you repent of adultery, okay? That's what Jesus is saying. Everything else you do is just, it's, just a, it's, just a, it's fake. If there is sin in our heart or life, God takes it with deadly seriousness. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, remember the famous Lord's table uh, passage that we always read before the Lord's Supper? In that particular text, in, the, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, hate, hate for whatever happened there, I'm sorry. <clears throat> it feels like every day at our house too, so it may have been our kid, I'm not sure. Uh, I hope not. Uh, so, uh, but no, th- th- this, is, this, is, this is the way this works. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, okay, when you guys are taking the Lord's Supper, you are in deliberate disobedience to me, the way that they're taking it. You're getting drunk. You know, the rich people are being gluttons while the poor people don't have anything to eat at the Lord's table. And they're one-upmanship with each other. And there's all kinds of competition. And there's evil. And there's pride and selfish ambition. And Paul says, you'd be better off not taking the Lord's Supper. This is not even really the Lord's Supper that you're taking. And he says, because of the way that you're not judging your heart before you come to the table, this is why some of you are weak and sick and some of you have died. In other words, God looked at the clinching of sin in the hearts of some of the Corinthians, and God says, okay, if that is going to be your attitude, you'd be better off not taking the Lord's table, and if you do take the Lord's table in the state of unrepentant sin, at least in some instances, God brought down physical illness and even death on some of these professing Christians, because God takes it that seriously. The most dangerous place a professing Christian can be is locked into a state of deliberate, willful sinning. Let me just be blunt here. If tonight you are planning to look at something on the internet that you should not look at, right now you've planned that in your heart, you know in the recesses of your heart that's going to happen tonight, and you're singing songs during the service, you are insulting the God of grace right now. God is not honored by that. And until you get rid of that sin in the center of the camp, everything else you do is fraudulent hypocrisy and an insult to the God of grace. God wants you to deal with the sin first right now. Like repent before God, get right with God, plead for his grace, ask for a change of heart, ask for forgiveness of sins. God says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be white as wool. God is ready to forgive. But am I ready to repent? God is not going to hold back. If I repent, God, God will lavish us with grace. But we must be willing to repent. That leads us to point number two. Repentance leads to immediate blessings now. Right now. Look at verse 19. Repentance leads to immediate blessings now. Verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, you will be blessed. What, what, what changed? If you look back, look at, verse, look at verse 18. This is where the people changed their whole way of being. They're going to rebuild the temple. Remember verse 18, consider from this day onward 
On the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Now stop here. Don't want to be confusing. He's not talking about when they laid the foundations of the temple 16 years ago. He's talking about now they are relaying. They're restarting the work right now. At this moment, the people are starting to obey. Remember the last couple months, they've started to obey. And God says, I see what's going on. God is, God is pleased by the repentance. They are starting to rework the temple. They're starting to get the sin out of the camp. They're starting to be obedient. And God says, okay, mark it on your calendar from this day onward. I'm going to pour out blessing on you. And remember, in the Old Covenant, blessing was both spiritual and physical, right? The crops coming out well and those kinds of things. We're not promised in the New Covenant that we're going to have an abundance of crops and those kinds of things in the same way that Israel was, but we are promised we'll be blessed in the here and now. Let me take you to the left to Psalm chapter 32. Turn with me to Psalm 32. just going to read some of the verses here. Verse 1, what, what kind of blessing are we going to receive at the moment of repentance? Verse 1, Psalm of David, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, now stop here. In verse 3, David is going to describe what his life was like when he was clenching on to his sin and refusing to confess it and repent of it. This is what his life was like when he was grasping his sin. He wouldn't tell God about it. He would not deal with it. He would not put it to death by the Spirit. Verse 3, for when I kept silent about his sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, that's God's hand, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Let me say, if you're a born-again person, you know exactly what David is describing right here. Because you've been there. I've been there. Where you are grasping onto a sin. You know what it's like, right? To willfully sin. You, you, you've, you've, you've experienced that, and here's what you know. What happens spiritually to your inward strength? What happens? It dries up. You feel miserable. You feel empty. You feel absolutely misery inside. It's like you've dried up inside. And all your strength is gone. And then look at verse 5. The blessing comes. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. John Piper says, confession to God is not merely admitting our sin as real, but also rejecting our sin as repulsive. That's important. To confess our sins, not just to say, oh yeah, that's a sin. Satan could do that. Yeah, I know that's wrong. No, no. Confession means not merely admitting your sin is real, but rejecting your sin as repulsive before God. And when David did that, joy flooded into his life. Look at verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Perhaps, perhaps for some, the reason that the joy that you have in the Lord is so paper thin right now, and spiritual dryness is dominating right now in your life, perhaps for some, is that there is sin in your heart that is being grasped onto and that you are not willing to come face to face with, you're not willing to confess it, hate it, fling it away, repent of it, and you're holding on to it, and the Lord says, listen, I'm not here to just beat you up over that. I want you to know that there's freedom, and there is joy, and there is wholeness, and there is grace, and there is forgiveness, simply for flinging it away and replacing it with me. Whatever you think that thing is going to give you is not going to work, but Jesus alone can satisfy our heart. 
Let's move to point number three. You can turn back to Haggai. Repentance leads to astonishing blessings, not just now, but later. We'll look at a couple of things here. Remember, I've got three sub-points on this, so this will take a few minutes. Point number three, repentance leads to astonishing blessings later. Let's start in Haggai 2, verse 6. I'll just mention what they are real quick. Number one, God will shake the nations. Number two, God's temple will be glorious. And number three, God's chosen king will reign. This is the wonderful future. He's going to shake the nations. His temple will be glorious. His chosen king will reign. Verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts." That's a nearly impossible promise to believe if you were there at the time. He just said, this dinky little temple you're trying to rebuild is going to outshine Solomon's temple one day. And you're only going to ultimately see that in the new covenant era and where that's going to lead. That's the promise. You have a glorious future. What does he mean by the nations will be shaken here? You know, that verse is quoted in the New Testament. Well, yet once more I will shake, not the earth only, but also the heavens. It's quoted in he- Hebrews chapter 12. This has always fascinated me. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 12, 26 says this. At, the, at that time, God's voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, quote, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Here's how Hebrews uh, takes that verse. God is going to one day shake every earthly kingdom down to dust. He's already, by the way, shaken the Babylonian kingdom. It's gone. He's shaken the Persian kingdom. He's shaken the Greek kingdom. He's shaken the Roman kingdom. And one day, uh, the United States will be shaken. Russia will be shaken. Every country in the world will be shaken down to its down to the dirt. And when Jesus comes back, it will be final. All judgment on all God's enemies, it will be absolutely final. God will shake all the nations, and there's only one kingdom that cannot be shaken that's going to last forever, and that's the kingdom that you're a part of if you know Jesus. Be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken because Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead. He has been raised with an invincible life, Hebrews says. He cannot die again. And because our future is attached to someone who cannot die, we have an invincible future in Jesus. And that means his kingdom can't be taken away. It can't be destroyed. It can't be shaken. So if I or you right now are living for kingdoms that can be shaken, if we're living for things that will be destroyed, that will one day be torn to the ground, burned to ash, uh, brought down to the dirt, if that's what I'm investing in ultimately, if that's my ultimate hope is in things that will one day be torn down and shaken by God, Let's just think not just about the wrongness of that, but the foolishness of that. There is a far better kingdom to invest our future in. And when we repent and trust in Christ, there is this wonderful future blessing that we will never have taken from us because of Christ and his invincible life. Let me say one more word here about this temple that will come in the future. Okay, When you come into the new covenant, you know this. Ephesians 2, 21 says that we, God's church, are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And here, this is amazing. 
A couple chapters later, Paul's talking to husbands and wives, but he says this, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, his temple, right? The church is the temple. He loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might, this is about you, sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any blemish that she might be holy and without blemish. I guarantee you the future of God's temple is looking quite bright. The future of God's temple is you and me perfected, radiant in splendor without spot or wrinkle, outshining Solomon in all his glory, outshining Solomon's temple because at the end of the Bible, what do you see? There's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and what is it? It's dressed as a bride for her husband. What is that ultimate temple? It is you. It's me. It's God's perfected people, this wonderful city, this bride of Christ coming down from heaven to be received by the groom. One last point here, the last few verses of the chapter, God's chosen king is going to reign in our future. Look with me at verses 20 to 23, the last verses of Haggai. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came, verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, about to shake the heavens and the earth, going to overthrow everyone, verse 23, on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, if you cross-reference the signet ring, it's pretty important, because um, Zerubbabel's grandfather was called a signet ring before God, and you've got to hear what was said about him. This is just his grandfather. Listen to this. This is Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. L- listen to what God says. This is right before exile. Just two generations earlier, God says, Jeremiah 22, 24, as I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, that's another name for Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, if he, though he were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I, will te- I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life into Nebuchadnezzar. To Nebuchadnezzar. So here's what God says. Okay. Imagine the ring is a signet ring, represents God's authority on earth. The Davidic king represents God's reign on earth, at least supposed to, right? His signet ring. And God says, because you have been so rebellious, I'm going to take you, the king. I'm going to rip you off my finger, the signet ring. I'm going to cast you over to Nebuchadnezzar and let him do to you whatever he pleases. And he's going to go through some torment as he goes away into exile. So God threatens that. And then two generations go by. The grandson shows up, Zerubbabel, and things, again, are not looking very good. They're not in political power. Persia's dominating over Israel. Zerubbabel's just a governor. He's not king. He's supposed to be king. He's in line to be king, but he's not king. He's just a governor under Persian authority. It's not looking very good for Israel. And God says, okay, Zerubbabel, you are going to be a sign about the future of the Davidic dynasty. I'm going to take the signet ring I took away from your grandfather. I'm going to put it right back on you because you are going to be, let me read it again. O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, I'm going to make you a signet ring for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, turn with me one last time to the first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. I'm just going to read a few select sentences here. Matthew 1 verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham is traced through David in verse 6. And then David is traced all the way to Babylonian exile, verse 12. And then look at verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, 
and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and it goes on, and it goes all the way down to verse 18, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Zerubbabel right now stands in as a representative of God has not given up on his promise to David. There is going to be a king from the line of David represented by Zerubbabel, the signet ring of God, and one of Zerubbabel's distant relatives is going to be born and laid in a manger. And that individual, that root out of dry ground, is going to one day be exalted to God's right hand as king after he is crucified, buried, and risen, and he is going to reign forever and ever as the true son of David. So for those who repent, we receive blessing now, the joy of God's presence, the refreshing from God's very presence, and then we have blessing forever. The blessing in the future involves these three things. Number one, no other nation is going to stand except God's one nation. All the others will be shaken. God's kingdom will not be shaken. Number two, God's temple will be glorious. And one day, you're going to, we are already part of that temple. We'll be perfected in Christ. And number three, we will be standing side by side. Revelation says we will be sitting on the same throne as Jesus, which almost sounds blasphemous, but that's what Jesus said. We're going to sit on the throne with Jesus under, his, under submission to him, and we will reign with Christ forever and ever in a new creation because God will keep his promise to David. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I do ask that you would help us to take sin with tremendous seriousness. God, if it is true of anyone in this room or anyone within the sound of my voice that right now they are clinging to willful sin, that you would let them know that everything else that they touch and everything they do becomes defiled because of that wickedness reigning in the center of their heart and life. I'm not talking about perfectionism. I'm just saying if there is willful sin in our life, deliberately chosen sin that we will not let go of, we are in danger and we must fling it away and receive fresh renewal, forgiveness, and the refreshing of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you would give that offer right now if it is needed, that though our sin be as scarlet, it shall be as white as snow. Though it be red like crimson, it shall be as wool, which is a remarkable promise. And then help us, God, to experience the blessing. Blessed is the man whose sin has been pardoned, whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his iniquity. What a blessing that is. And then, God, help us to focus on future blessing that Haggai points out so clearly All the kingdoms of this earth are going to be shaken and destroyed, but there is one kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's the kingdom of your beloved Son. And God, if we know you, if we are truly believers in Christ, we are part of that kingdom now, and we are part of that kingdom eternally, and we get to reign with the Davidic King, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all of time and for all of eternity. I pray you would encourage us by that. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.